Well, the good thing is that while life is tough, we have a God who is all-powerful and who is gracious and who helps us see. So we don't just have to grin and bear it. We know that in Christ we are more than overcomers. Please turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. So glad that you're here to worship with us this morning and to uh, seek, uh, seek our great God and our great Savior and hear His Word. 1 John chapter 3, where we look at verses 4 through 10 this morning. You know, genetically it makes sense, but the fact that some people look just like their mother or father is just kind of weird. It's kind of scary. Just take a look at these pictures here. See the family resemblance. Judy Garland and Liza Minnelli, they look almost just alike. Next one. Demi Moore and Rumor Willis. I mean, just alike. Next. George Bush and George Bush. Same name even. Look just alike. How about Billy Graham and Franklin Graham? Just alike. How about this one? Just alike. Now you can take that off. I know that's a much cuter picture than what you see right now, but take it off, please. Family resemblance is natural, it's normal, and it's expected. And it's not just true physically, it's true in a lot of things, right? We pick up the mannerisms of our parents. We pick up the same words and the same speech habits as our parents. Now, last week, we focused on God's out-of-this-world love for His own. The love that is the basis for our adoption and for our rebirth, our, our salvation, to make us children of God. Today, John is going to continue talking about the children of God, but do so as he contrasts children of God with children of the devil. And I want to start by saying that this is a difficult passage. It's not an easy passage. In fact, as I read this passage, some of us might squirm in our seats a little bit. And the truth is, as I read this passage, some of us need to be squirming in our seats a little bit. So if you will, please stand. The Apostle John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God's perfect word. 1 John chapter 3, beginning of verse 4. Everyone who practices, excuse me, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. Will you pray with me? Lord, we are humbling ourselves now because we want to hear from you. We're humbling ourselves now and, Lord, it's the desire of our hearts to be submissive to you. We're humbling ourselves right now before you because you are the God eternal and we come to you for life. And, Lord, we pray that even in these moments your spirit would bring transformation to us. As we hear and embrace 
and receive your word. For your glory we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, in order to make sense of this text, I just want to ask four questions of the text. We're just going to ask four questions of the text. And the first question is this. What is sin? What is sin? Now, John uses two different words in reference to sin here in this passage. The first one is amartia. Amartia means to miss the mark. Uh, In classical Greek, this term was used to describe a warrior who goes into battle and strikes against his opponent or against his enemy, but misses. Or it may be used in classical Greek as one who is traveling down a path and inadvertently takes a wrong turn or veers off into an incorrect direction. That person has missed the mark. Now, frankly, we can relate to this. Everyone in this room knows people who just have trouble with Directions. We might say they are directionally challenged. So whether it's driving or hiking or whatever it is, they seem to get lost. They seem to veer off in the wrong direction and they end up in a place where they don't want to be. And while that's true, in the New Testament, we're not talking about accidental, uh, accidentally going the wrong direction. We are talking about a willful disregard for what is right and for what is true. This is purposefully going into your neighbor's yard or going onto your neighbor's acreage in order to hunt because the hunting is better there. You know what you're doing. You're going in a different direction. You're going in the opposite direction that you ought to go. So the first thing we see here is this. Sin is a purposeful and willful breaking of God's moral standards. Sin is a willful and purposeful breaking of God's moral standard. Now, the second word that John uses to describe sin here, or in reference to sin, is anomia. This word means lawlessness. Anomia. Lawlessness. Now, interestingly enough, in these epistles, John never refers to the law of God. He's not contrasting things with God's law. So it may then, on the surface, seem to us a little bit odd that he would use the term lawlessness in reference to sin. And commentators over the years, scholars over the years, have picked up on this. And they've used this as a way to uh, separate out sins. You know, we have the, the big sins over here, and we have the little sins over here. And it's the big sins, those are the ones that are really bad, and that's what lawlessness is, you know. That's, that's really bad, and that'll get you in big trouble. But that's not right, friends. I don't think that's what John is trying to communicate to us. No, I think John is telling us that sin is sin, and all sin is lawlessness. All sin is rebellion against God's moral standard. So rather than think of big sins and little sins, we need to move away from this idea that some sins are okay. Because as we live through this life, friends, what we see is that people live with this mindset that, you know, some sin is okay. Some sin in our life is okay. In fact, we sometimes deal with that. It isn't an odd that the sins that we okay in our lives are, frankly, the sins that we're really good at doing. We think about bitterness and jealousy and gossip and, you know, just little white lies and all these, quote, little sins. Selfishness. Now, we don't do the big sins. I mean, you know the big sins, you know, we don't do the big ones, you know, like adultery and murder and we don't, we don't do those things. But but the little ones, well, I mean, I mean, come on, give us a break. Are they 
Are they that big of a deal? But John is telling us that sin is lawlessness. And God's word says that if we sin just once, just one sin makes us accountable for the whole law. This is what James writes in James chapter 2 and verse 10. So just one sin, just one act of rebellion against God makes us worthy of judgment, of condemnation. This is what God's word is telling us. So while John may not be referring specifically to God's law here, he's clearly referring to God's moral character. He's clearly referring to God's ways. Lawlessness, friends, is rebellion against God. Lawlessness is rebellion against God. It's rebellion against his word. It's rebellion against his holiness. It's rebellion against his ways. Now, the Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned. And friends, it's not just once. All have sinned and all have fallen short of God's glory. In other words, we've all missed the mark. We've all strayed from the right path in an effort to make our own way. We've all turned from God and sought to exalt ourselves. Jesus says that God's bullseye is perfection. Twice speaking to the people, he says, look, if you want to see the kingdom of God, then you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be perfect as He is perfect. But the problem is, none of us are perfect. Because we've all strayed, we've all gone the wrong direction, we've all missed the mark, we have all committed lawlessness. We don't measure up. So, that's a problem. And that leads right to the second question we ask of the text this morning. Why did Jesus appear? Look again with me, if you will, verse 5 and verse 8. You know that He, that is Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. That's in Jesus there is no sin. And then in verse 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God, that's Jesus, appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, that word translated appeared here means to become visible or to come into sight, to reveal, to make known. What John is saying is that Jesus came into sight. Not that he was created. John's not talking about creation here. In fact, by using this word, he's pointing us to the pre-existence of the eternal Son of God. That Jesus has always been because he is co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit. But he became a man. He took on flesh. He came into our sight. Friends, he came into our humanity. And why? John says Jesus appeared to take away. We might understand that as destroy or execute sin. Jesus appeared to take away sin. Literally, to take it up and to take it away. This reminds me of what John the Baptist said as John is baptizing people in the Jordan River, a baptism of repentance. And he sees Jesus coming from far off and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the fact that John the Baptist understands Jesus as the Lamb of God tells us something about how he will then take away our sin. He'll do it through sacrifice. 
He takes away our sin through the sacrifice of Himself. In fact, John's already referred to this. Turn back with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, look at verse 1 and following. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, Jesus is the atoning sacrifice that takes away the wrath of God upon rebellion. Because God is a holy God. Because God is a truthful God. Because God has said, I will punish those who sin. I will punish those who break covenant with me. There is punishment for lawbreakers. And sin is lawlessness, and we are all sinners, so this means we are all deserving of eternal punishment in a place called hell. But Jesus dies on a cross as the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God. Remember, John said, in Him there is no sin. He is uniquely qualified to serve this purpose. So Jesus then takes away our sin. Peter says it like this, he bore, First Peter chapter 2, He bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. On the cross, Jesus took up our sins and took them away as they were executed along with Him on the cross for our forgiveness. There is hope in Jesus Christ. Now said differently, Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That's what John writes there in Verse 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So what are then the works of the devil? Well, in verse 8, he tells us the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Now, the devil was created. The angel Lucifer was a created being, just like all things are created being except the triune God. But this is a reference to his pride-driven rebellion against God. Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, where Lucifer sought to exalt himself over God, to take the place of God, and God thrust Lucifer, Satan, the devil, the accuser, the adversary, down from the heavens. John chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus says that the devil is a murderer and a liar, and that is his nature, right? It was the devil who tempted Eve in the garden. It was the devil who introduced sin to mankind when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate of that fruit. And when they did disobey God, there was a spiritual death, a separation from the pinnacle of God's creation, mankind, between God and sinners, and all who would be born after Adam would be born in rebellion, born in sin, enslaved to sin. John chapter 8, verse 34. So Satan then is the author of confusion, and he is the accuser of the brethren. He is a powerful enemy, one that we cannot defeat in our own strength. One that we have no hope against apart from the grace of God. Adam and Eve understood this acutely. And after their sin, they went and they hid. They went and they hid, ashamed of what they had done. So God comes to them and asks them, where are you? Of course he knew where they were, but they were hiding in fear. They were hiding in shame. They understood that Satan had got the best of them and they had no hope against him. And now they face the eternal God. And what would he say? 
Well, in his grace, he said, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. And what we see is that Jesus is the seed of the woman, born of the Virgin Mary, conceived by the Holy Spirit, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial and a substitutionary death on the cross. And in the cross and in the resurrection, Jesus crushes the head of the serpent by God's grace. So Jesus came to free us from slavery to sin, friends. Jesus came to free us from slavery to sin and to restore what Satan had broken. Through his perfect life, through his substitutionary and sacrificial death, and through his resurrection from the grave, Jesus restores all things. Spiritually and physically and emotionally and relationally experienced In this life, in part, but in full, in the consummation of salvation, in the resurrection of the dead, and the glorified bodies. So, why did Jesus appear? Jesus appeared to take away our sin and to destroy the work of the devil. Which leads us to our third question. Does Scripture teach that Christians do not sin? Does Scripture teach that Christians do not sin. Now, in answering this question, we're going to look at it scripturally, we're going to look at it theologically, and we're also going to touch on history as well. But before we come to any conclusions from these verses, 4 through 10, I want us to remember what John the Apostle has already said in this letter thus far. Because in the very first chapter, he says, he writes in chapter 1, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If, remember, he's writing now to professing Christians. He's writing to a church. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we're making God out to be a liar. Remember, God's the one who has pointed a finger and said, you're guilty. And if we say that we have no sin, if we say that we're not guilty, then we're making God, the judge of the universe, the perfect and holy one, out to be a liar. Verse 9. John says, look, when we do sin, confess it. Confess your sin. And and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the answer to the question is this. No, Christians do struggle with and commit sin. Does the Bible teach that Christians don't sin? No, the Bible doesn't teach that. Christians do struggle with and commit sin. What does Paul have to say about it? The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 21 through 25. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that's my body, another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What he's talking about is this battle between the two natures. Right? The old man, the man that was enslaved to sin, is still present. Through Christ and the cross and his victory, we're not slaves to sin anymore, but there still is a persistent nagging towards sin. We have habits in our life. We don't want to sin. We've been regenerated by the blood of Christ. The Spirit of God has made us new. 
but we battle sin. I've heard it said like this before. If you, know, if you have an alcoholic in your family, you know this to be true. Someone who is an alcoholic never ceases to be an alcoholic. They may be sober, but they're always an alcoholic. As Christians, sin's presence remains within us. Until the day we are resurrected and have a glorified body. So we fight against it. We're not slaves to it. It is no longer our master, but it's still there. Waging war against us. So, in answer to our first question, Scripture does not teach that Christians are immune to sin. But we say that, and then we read verses 6 through 9, and you say, wait a minute. I mean, verse 6. He who abides in him, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And if you do keep on sinning, you don't know him and you haven't seen him. And then verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. In fact, he can't because God's seed abides in him and he has been born of God. God's seed is likely a reference to the Holy Spirit. And frankly, likely a reference to the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing about a rebirth. Being born again, regenerated. So God's presence, God's nature in us through faith in Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But he says, no one who is born of God goes on sinning. He's saying you can't continue sinning. You can't make a practice of sin. Because if you did, you do, then you haven't even seen God or you don't know God. What is he ta- What have I been saying for the past five minutes? Did he just undo it? Well, let's seek to understand this and let's just recognize that this is not easy. And there's been a lot of theories over the years. But before we talk about those, I think it's important that we understand why the apostle is writing what he's writing, why he's saying what he is saying. I mean, we've seen in our study of 1 John so far that John is combating Gnostic false teachers. These who denied that Jesus was the true Son of God, they said Jesus couldn't have been the Son of God because all physical, all material thing, stuff is evil. Spiritual is good, but material is evil. So how could Jesus be the true Son of God? They claimed that salvation didn't depend on blood atonement in Jesus Christ, but it depended on a special revealed knowledge to certain people, to the enlightened ones. Not only that, they minimized the importance of righteous living. Some of them claimed to be without sin, as if they had reached some kind of a a state of perfectionism. Others claimed that they were enlightened, they were spiritual now, so their lifestyle doesn't really matter, that they couldn't be touched by sin, that they were beyond the realm of sin, so it didn't matter how they lived because they were spiritual now. This is important to understand because John is writing in a specific context with a precise purpose. And throughout the letter, John is saying, no, sin does matter. And living righteously does matter. Now keep that in mind as we work through these theories. Over the years, there's been a lot of different theories about what does John mean when he says, look, if, if you're a Christian, then you won't practice sin anymore. In fact, you can't practice sin. Well, early on, many theologians and scholars would have argued that, well, what this means is that Christians can't practice the big sins. They can do the littler sins, but they won't willfully and deliberately do the big sins. Roman Catholic Church picked up on this and developed a tiered level of sin. You have your venial sins, which those are 
inconsequential sins, right? They're sins that are sin, but, you know, ultimately they're not that huge of a deal. And you have your mortal sins. Your mortal sins are, are the big ones, right? And if you commit a mortal sin, that's really bad. Now, if you are a Christian, if you profess to know Jesus Christ and you commit one of these mortal sins, then you can lose your justification. Now, you can earn it back, you know, go through the penance and go through the mass and all sorts of things like that. And you can earn it back then, but, but you lose it. And if you lose it and you haven't earned it back, you're going to go to purgatory. And then you've got to hope that you can get out of purgatory and get to heaven. That's the Roman Catholic way of dealing with this. Others would argue that, no, it's just saying that Christians won't sin deliberately. They won't willfully do wrong. They'll accidentally do wrong, but they won't willfully do wrong, whatever the level of sin. Others would argue that John is just talking about the ideal Christian here. Ideally, Christians won't keep sinning because God's seed abides in them. Well, that's not how he presents it. He's not talking about the ideal situation. Others, like John Wesley and Wesleyan theology, believe that Christians can reach a state of perfection. He describes this in his book, A Plain Account of Christian Perfection. However, based on Scripture, I don't think John means any of those things. In fact, as we look at this, the verbs translated keep on sinning in verse 6 and makes a practice of sin in verse 9 are present active verbs. I think what John is telling us is this. Christians will not and cannot habitually live in sin. Not in words, not in thoughts, not in attitudes, not in actions, not in our inactions and not in our reactions either. Christians will not, frankly, they cannot be characterized by a continual doing or practicing of sin. Christians will not, they cannot be characterized by a continual doing or practicing of sin. Those who have been freed from bondage of sin, who have undergone the profound change of heart that is associated with regeneration in Christ, will not be characterized by a life of sin. That's why John says, no one who is born of God. No one who is born of God will continue this way. No one. Why? Because being born of God is a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit takes up residence, number one, He regenerates our hearts. He takes what Ezekiel will point to in Ezekiel 36, the dead heart of stone. He rips it out and He puts in a living heart. A heart of flesh that is spiritually alive, spiritually connected to Him. The Holy Spirit is at work the Holy Spirit has made us alive in Christ. In fact, in Ezekiel 36, the prophet, speaking of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, says, I'll give you a new heart, a living heart, a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you, and my spirit will cause you to walk in my ways, to obey my statutes. In John chapter 16, verses 8 through 15, the Holy Spirit's ministry in the life of a Christian is to convict us of sin and to lead us in truth. Christians do sin, friends. I'm the chief of sinners. Christians do sin. But Christians cannot continue practicing deliberate, habitual rebellion against God because the Spirit of God will bring that believer under conviction. And by the grace of God, that believer will turn from sin and will turn to righteousness. In John chapter 10 and verse 3, Jesus says that the sheep will hear His voice. They will hear His voice. 
They will recognize their sin. It may take a little while, but they will recognize sin and they will turn from sin. Friends, that's what church discipline is about. Why does Jesus say, look, if your brother is sinning, then go tell that one. But if he will not listen, in other words, if he will not repent, then treat him like a tax collector or a Gentile. Why? A tax collector and a Gentile are, are, symbolize someone who is outside a covenant life with God, a covenant relationship with God. Treat them as such. Why? Because by failing to repent, by ignoring the Spirit of God, they are proving themselves not to be believers of Jesus Christ. That's what he's getting at. This is a tough passage, friends. This is a tough passage, but we need to hear it. Because some of us may need to be squirming in our seat a little bit right now. Commentator I. Howard Marshall writes, A Christian is a person whose heart is set on pleasing God and who therefore cannot make sin his way of life, even if he may lapse from his high intent. And friends, every one of us lapses from this high intent regularly. More than we wish we could admit. But a believer will not make his life a life of sin. Which leads us to the last question this morning. What are the implications of John's teaching? What are the implications of John's teaching? Really, if we boil this down, there's a lot to do with self-reflection and self-evaluation here. And yes, John wrote, I've said this before, John wrote primarily to give assurance to the church that they were Uh, children of God, that they had eternal life. But friends, we should always allow God's word to measure us and not for us just to measure ourselves. God's word must measure us. So it would be wise for us to allow God's word to measure us right now. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. So with fatherly concern, friends, the apostle is writing to this church that he loves. And with this fatherly concern, he's saying, don't be deceived. And the deception revolves around the way they would live. Because the Gnostics were saying, it doesn't matter how you live. Sin is irrelevant for you. If you're enlightened, if you're beyond it, it doesn't matter. And John's saying, it does matter. It does matter. In fact, what he's saying is, spiritually speaking, we will resemble our Father. We will resemble our Father. Those who have experienced the lavish love of God live righteously. And those who practice sin are children of the devil. And yes, friends, this is a shocking statement. There's no way around that. It is a shocking statement. But John heard it first from Jesus. John chapter 8, verse 42 and following. And just keep this in mind. Jesus is talking in the presence of I don't know if they were listening, okay? But he's talking in the presence of some of the most religious people of the day. John chapter 8, verse 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? 
It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Did you get that? Jesus, as John records, is saying to religious people, people who would go to church every Sunday, people who would go to Sunday school every Sunday for their entire lives. You don't know me. And you don't love me. I don't care about all your religious activity, Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you loved me, you would receive me. You would believe me. And Jesus says that those who love him, follow him. If you love me, you will do what I say. You will follow my commandments. This is important, friends. It's not about religion. It's about loving him. It's about loving him. And John says the one who practices sin is of the devil. The one whose life is characterized by sin does not love Jesus. Hear this. An attitude of indifference towards sin indicates spiritual death. An attitude of indifference towards sin indicates spiritual death. I don't care about decisions that may have been made years ago. Any decision for Christ that does not uh, result in a putting sin to death and a growing in righteousness was not a genuine decision for Jesus Christ. Danny Aiken, the president of the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, says, To live a life of sin is to align oneself with the world and the devil and to be at enmity with God. That's why John says in verse 10, Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And if this doesn't awaken you from a spiritual slumber, then I don't know what will, friends. We have to stop kidding ourselves. We have to stop assuring ourselves that everything's going to be okay and we have to get real. Listen, how we live matters because how we live gives evidence of whose we are. How we live matters because how we live gives evidence of whose we are. Sinclair Ferguson wrote in his book, Devoted to God, Are we convinced that without holiness we will never see the Lord? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14. He goes on. God is a single-minded God. He is absolutely determined to make me holy. What possesses me to think that I can be indifferent to, or even worse, refuse and resist His good purpose? And if the all-wise and all-loving one has set his heart on this, why would I want anything different for myself. So friends, may God's word motivate us to seek him and to battle sin. And may God's word motivate us to pray for loved ones who are living indifferently towards sin. Hear me now. The distinguishing trait of all those who are born of God, who are children of God, is righteousness. It's righteousness. That's why he says... Those who don't practice righteousness, those who practice sin, are children of the devil. And hear me, okay? It's not that if we practice enough righteous deeds, then we'll become righteous. That's not what he's saying. 
righteous deeds give evidence of the fact that we are children of God, made righteous by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 33, make the tree good and its fruit will be good, but make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. All those who have been made righteous by the blood of Christ will produce good fruit. And what makes one a child of God is faith. It's only faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave his life for us. We are saved by grace alone. But friends, to experience God's grace is to be a transformed and a transforming individual. Is to be changed. So let me ask you this question. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Have you turned from sin? Have you placed your faith fully in the finished work of Jesus Christ? And are you living for him? Or are you a child of the devil? Maybe doing a lot of religious things, but never fully resting and trusting in Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to transition to a time of invitation. And I plead with you, if you do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, come and let us tell you, explain to you the gospel. Let us share with you how you can know forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life. Maybe you are a Christian, but you're just caught up in sin. Friend, repent. And use this time to, to confess sin to God and to turn from it. Or maybe you need to spend this time just praying for people that you know, people that you love, but people who are living indifferently towards sin. Asking God to awaken them from a spiritual slumber and commit yourself to being used of God to speak truth to them. In just a minute, we're going to pray. And then we'll have our time of invitation. Will you pray with me? Lord, we pray that you would help us Lord, because a message like this is difficult to hear, and it's also difficult to ignore. It would be easy for many of us in this room to just write it off as not really applicable to us. But I pray that your Spirit would help us to analyze and to evaluate our own lives. And I pray that your will would be accomplished. And Lord, I pray that you would save people. I pray that your grace would so overwhelm men and women and boys and girls. And I pray that you would use members of this church to communicate this truth to people who are apart from you and that you will bring salvation through their proclamation. You're the God who saves. And we pray you do your saving work now. Your saving and your sanctifying work even now. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand as we sing together, please?